The following podcast contains explicit language. Tell Mr. Trump you want to meet him. I love you, Trump. <laughs> Nobody use any racial slurs. Nobody call me the word. It's microaggressions. He does not support Mexicans, not Jews, not Muslims, not blacks, no one but his own kind. The rich. When Trump says we'll lose our country, that's not just a, I mean, maybe he's being a little extreme. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who called Hillary Clinton smart, tough, and a very nice person in 2008, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Okay, so here are some names. Peter Thiel, the petulant billionaire who wants to live forever while suing his critics into bankruptcy. Pam Bondi, the Florida attorney general who asked for a $25,000 thank you donation after deciding not to prosecute Trump University for fraud. And Rudy Giuliani, the most reliable defender of white cops who shoot unarmed black men. Is this the opening roster for a new reality show called Worst Person Ever? Kind of. It's a partial lineup for the Donald Trump Festival of Himself, an event formerly known as the Republican National Convention. I actually think Asshole Apprentice could be a great show. And hopefully it will mark the beginning of Trump's transition from blight on our political culture back to merely the worst of our popular culture. On today's show, what's Donald Trump doing when he takes his sweet time to weakly disavow former KKK leader David Duke? When he claims Barack Obama is foreign? When he retweets white supremacists and neo-Nazis? Is he a nutball racist himself? Or is he slyly cultivating his alt-right following? Or is he just being reckless, a child playing with matches who doesn't know that fire burns? I'll be back in a minute to discuss that with Nicholas Confessori of the New York Times and the author of a new piece about Trump's relationship with the white nationalist movement. But first, let's do some tweets. I heard that underachieving John King of at CNN on Inside Politics was one hour of lies. Happily, few people are watching Dead Network. I am somewhat surprised that Bernie Sanders was not true to himself and his supporters. They are not happy that he is selling out. Bernie Sanders endorsing crooked Hillary Clinton is like Occupy Wall Street endorsing Goldman Sachs. Bernie Sanders has abandoned his supporters by endorsing pro-war, pro-TTP, pro-Wall Street crooked Hillary Clinton. To all the Bernie voters who want to stop bad trade deals and global special interests, we welcome you with open arms. People first. My guest today is Nicholas Confessori. He's a New York Times reporter and the author of a really interesting piece this week on white nationalism and Donald Trump. Uh, Nick, how did you get started on this theme? I mean, obviously, there's been a ton of discussion about Trump and racism. There has. I think we started with this idea of, of first, if the Times had adequately done justice to um, his impact on the way Americans, especially the white Americans, uh, think about race, talk about race. And we thought we wanted to do something ambitious and to borrow 
pretty deeply into it. And, you know, partly we were also responding to um, a lot of interest in the way that Trump communicated at a distance with really marginal elements, you know, white supremacists, nationalists, his interactions with them on on Twitter, which are kind of mediated, uh, but are something you can kind of kind of look at and see. And we wanted to explain to readers what is going on here exactly. But as I got deeper into the reporting, I began to feel that uh, to focus only on you know a small handful, frankly, of, of self-identified white nationalists and neo-Nazis and anonymous trolls online would be to sort of undersell or or underexplain the much broader impact Trump was having with a much broader group of people, some of whom I think are a lot more sympathetic and whose concerns come from a less overtly weird or dangerous place. And those are people you would not call white nationalists, per se. What do, how do you describe those people? Um, I'm not sure I would give them a label aside from being uh, from whites. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that, that until Trump came along, they had begun to think of themselves in the kinds of ways that white nationalists favor. But what I found striking in talking to the activists in the white nationalist world was their sense that Trump was intuitively speaking their language and leading other white people, mainstream white people, into an understanding of their language. And to be specific about how that works, the people who are white nationalists today don't call themselves white nationalists for the most part. They're younger, they're smart, they're articulate, they're online. They have tried to refashion themselves uh, by appropriating the language of multiculturalism itself, in which they are another interest group with pride in their European-American culture and a desire to protect it and see it extended and expanded and preserved. What, what they want is for more white people to think of themselves as white people. And as you know, Jacob, often in American history and politics, Whiteness is really more of a default setting. For a lot of people, it's, it's synonymous, unconsciously or not, with American. It's not something that, you know, is usually brought out as a distinct form of politics, or at least hasn't been in 50 years. And what Trump has started to do in his own way is set the table or break the boundaries, pick your metaphor, for that sensibility, for the sense of white people uh, as a group in and of themselves. Nick, don't you think in a way that that sort of backlash is the fruit of multiculturalism itself? I mean, if in a world based on identity politics, people who are European-American think, why don't we get to assert our identity too? I think it absolutely is uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, certainly, and again, you can you can talk to people who you might not be that sympathetic to, uh, but be intrigued by the connections they make, and you begin to understand that other people make the same connections, right? And And kind of one of them is, that the ideology of the early civil rights movement, uh, you know, in the mid-century uh, of colorblindedness was something that was absorbed deeply into mainstream American politics. It became a national idiom. It became the ideal that we're all supposed to aspire to. And, you know, white people, for the most part, pay homage and lip service to that idea, even when they are uncomfortable with it. But in the meantime, the dominant culture of politics on the left, both, I think, among activist groups and in the, you know, the more exotic realms of, of academe, was to think of groups as separate and different and worthy of protection and discussion and lionization on their own terms. And so these guys, and I say that broadly across the spectrum from people who might be your neighbor to people who congregate on neo-Nazi websites, what they argue is 
why aren't white people allowed to just be another group like that? And the difference is the background reality of that conversation in 1975 is very different from the background today when America is becoming a majority-minority country, when whites eventually will be a minority and in some sense a special interest group. And where working-class whites have lost so much of their economic priority because of deindustrialization and so on and, and the, the decline of their relative status in society combined with their economic decline. I think the key idea there is relative loss, right? As, as you know, when you look at the research on this, a lot of what Trump is benefiting from is uh, the sense among working-class whites that they are further behind than they should be. And they believe, wrongly for the most part, that people of other races have accelerated past them and are doing better, when really what's happening is that they are doing a lot worse than they usually have in American history and politics, and everybody else is in some ways doing worse, <laughs> but they're used to doing worse. And a lot, of the people you, a lot of the people you talk to seem to actually think that whites suffer from anti-white discrimination more than other minorities suffer from discrimination. Yeah, you know, I, I delved into the literature on this, and it's something you can see in polling research, and this is sophisticated stuff. This isn't just, a, you know, an average tracking poll in, in politics. And you see some echoes of it in the conservative media. It is, it is now a truism on Fox News that when somebody makes a charge of racism, that charge is itself racist. It's playing the race card. There's almost no underlying engagement with the actual event or the charge. And you see in polling data that a majority of whites, and more and more whites certainly, started to believe essentially that uh, the era when the worst racism was against people of color is over, and the era when there is at least as much racism against whites is increasing. And what's racism against whites? You have to guess to some extent, but you can imagine it's the criticisms of Black Lives Matter, it's the criticisms of cops, it's the criticisms of criticism of Obama as being racist, right? All of these things kind of stir together. My takeaway from your piece, Nick, is that Donald Trump may or may not be racist, but racists really like Donald Trump, and Donald Trump does not want to lose their support. He is really happy to have their support, and he's playing this game where he's trying to stay just on, well, he can't even say he's trying to stay on the right side of a line, but he's trying not to be shockingly offensive himself, but he's trying not to alienate his supporters on the alt-right or white nationalists or however you want to describe them. Well, you know, it's, it's something, you know, you wrestle with in a story like this. You, you can never see in somebody's mind. You can evaluate what they say. You can make a judgment about whether it's racist or not, and different people will have different judgments about it. It's hard to know what he is doing or what he thinks he is doing when it comes to his engagement on social media or his distancing or a semi-distancing from the white nationalists. But they certainly interpret it as a game of footsie. They certainly see it as a desire uh, on Trump's part to not offend them or throw them over. And there is almost, and probably in fact entirely, never been a mainstream presidential candidate, certainly a, a nominee, who has done that. Because the usual game, and the one that to some extent Trump is, is throwing over, is Somebody like David Duke says, I like that candidate. And the candidate says, I denounce David Duke. And Trump won't do that. But I guess you've hit on the sort of key question, which is, is Donald Trump being sly or sloppy 
in relation to these people. He didn't disavow David Duke's support right away. Then when pressed on him, he said, I disavow it. I disavow it. You read that very closely and you have reaction in your piece from people who say, you disavow what? You know, he's, he's vague about it. But do you think he is choosing his words and his retweets and all of that with some precision to engage in a game of footsie and signaling with those people? Or is he just kind of going off half-cocked the way he always does and we're maybe reading too much into this? I, I wish I knew. <laughs> and since he didn't uh, consent to an interview, I didn't have a chance to probe this with him. You know, one school of thought, and I'm not saying it's my school of thought, but one school of thought is this is a guy who lives in the newspaper age. When he speaks to a reporter, he's thinking about the quote, and he instinctively somehow wants to avoid the quote, the disavowal quote that will alienate or anger or tell off the person who supports him. That he's doing that deliberately. And when it comes to doing it with people who almost every other politician would renounce, you have to wonder, like, why? There are not that many of these people <laughs> in the country. It is puzzling and I think to a lot of people disturbing that for these marginal elements, he is so committed to not playing what he sees as a game of gotcha from the media, that he'd rather seem to be sympathetic or actually act sympathetic to some marginal and extreme elements in the country. There may not be that many neo-Nazis, but there are a lot of people on the right who dabble in these ideas that Obama's not born in America. I mean, birtherism is a racist idea, and the way Trump played that was, I think, argues more for the sly than the sloppy, right? I mean, he pushed that button, but he pushed it in this very particular way where he said, I'm, I'm just raising the question. We have to get an answer to this question. And then at some point when he pushed it a little too far, he just said, I'm not talking about it anymore. And the media has let him get away with that. What do you mean you're not talking about it anymore? Your position was that the president's birth certificate was probably fake, and now you've just declared the topic off limits. Yeah, well, you know, there's some interesting research as well on the birther question, and and there's a political scientist in California who uses a lot of different polling data to essentially test what he calls racial conservatism or racial liberalism. And what they do is ask you questions like, you know, uh, blacks are behind economically compared to whites. Is that more because of the lingering impact of discrimination or because they won't try hard enough? And so if you lean in the, in, in the second category, that gets put on your score as a racial conservative. And this is his way of trying to get people to say what they think without asking them to say if they were a racist or not, because there's almost nobody in America today who would want to say they were a racist. That, that norm is too embedded. Even George Wallace didn't say he was Even a racist. Even George Wallace would never say he was a racist. And Donald Trump is very aggressive and saying, I'm not a racist. Are you crazy? Because everybody recognizes that a, an open race is a bad thing to be, right? right? That norm is well established in American society. Um, but what you do find is if you polled the Romney voters in 2012, the Mitt Romney voters in 2012, what you found is that um, over half of them thought that Obama was not a Christian, which is interesting because obviously he is. Right. <laughs> and uh, of those people who believed he was not a Christian, those people tend to fall heavily on the score of racial conservatism. So it is a opinion, it is a wrong opinion, that is heavily associated with racial conservatism. And, and Tesla's argument, based on this, this data and this research, is that, um, as you can imagine, that birtherism is, is racism by a different name. It's a way of expressing discomfort with Obama's race 
without being seen to express discomfort with his race. So that is arguably one thing that is going on here, that it is one of the proxies, uh, and that in some sense, Trump, with his call for a Muslim ban, in addition to the to the birtherism, is tapping into that a little bit. But, you know, one of the things that's so dismaying about the success Trump has is, for me, it's meant coming to grips, I think, with the reality that the country is much more racist than I thought. Is that your takeaway as well after doing this piece? You know, it's a... It's a plainly put question. I'm not sure how to answer it. Um, What I found in my reporting was that Trump has created a language, certainly in politics, that is a lot more blunt about immigration and Islam and race than any presidential nominee would dare to embrace before. And what I found is that it's a kind of a signal, and it has allowed people to express themselves by affiliating with Trump, by even just shouting his name. You know, when a bunch of white high school students shout Trump, Trump, Trump at the players of an opposing team in a central Iowa high school, and that those players are mostly Hispanic and black. That is a way of, of expressing racial hostility without saying you're a bunch of wetbacks, right? Without engaging in usual Trump, Trump himself, Trump himself is becoming a kind of racial code. Yeah. And he, he, he's created that by the way he talks about uh, Muslims and, 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 and immigrants, you know, he himself is sort of the pathbreaker on breaking some of those boundaries down. And I think through the path he has broken, a lot of other stuff is pouring out. And some of it is pretty rancid and disturbing. And it's coming into American public discourse in a way that I don't think either of us have seen openly in, in a very long time or even in, in our whole lives. Nick, thanks for joining me on the show today. My pleasure, Jacob. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast wants to help with the Republican convention in Cleveland. Our producer, Jason DeLeon, wants to do a mixed martial arts demonstration. Steve Lichtai can play the ukulele. And Andy Bowers says everybody loves it when he does a live read of his explicit language warning. And John D. Domenico, everybody knows he does Trump better than Trump does. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening. Justice Ginsburg of the U.S. Supreme Court has embarrassed all by making very dumb political statements about me. Her mind is shot. Resign.